You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fox. So the same Welcome all to this week's episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is episode 147. I'm David Grubbs. I'll be your host this week. Uh, I'm a professor of English at Central Christian College of Kansas in McPherson, Kansas. With me this week, like most of the many of them, is Nathan Gilmore, associate professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. How goes this morning, Nathan? I'm doing all right. I'm, I'm still parsing most of the many of them. i yeah, I, I don't know. It's er, it's it is early listeners, and I'm winging it. Yeah, well, I, is is that like the commutative property in algebra? Poten- potentially, potentially that's that's what that is. All right. Oh, also with us, and also I think probably winging it is Michael Farmer, assistant professor of English at Crown College in Saint Bonifatius, Minnesota. Good morning, Michael. Good morning, David. I'm yawning as you say it, so that should give you some idea of what today's episode is going to be like. <laughs> well, today's episode, as uh, as promised at the end of last week's feedback episode, uh, we're going to be looking at some stories from H.P. Lovecraft, the not-quite-canonical but still somehow crazily one-name famous uh, pulp writer from the early 20th century. But before we do that, do we have any housekeeping to do? Uh, nothing leaps to mind other than to say, uh, you know, the profile stream is going to be quiet for a few weeks, but we do have some more interviews lined up, so keep your eye on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yep. F- you know, f- the feminist podcast, you should listen to that. That's still going. The Book of Nature's second episode must be coming out sometime soon. One would hope. Any uh, yeah, update the- on the Danny show from Emanuel College? <laughs> um, uh, I'm going to say no. <laughs> so that may be coming at some point. Yes, yes. We're hoping it eventually emerges. <laughs> You know, if if he if he if he listened to our show, then he would feel the pressure we're putting on him. But <laughs> all right, well, with all of that done, and you know, just just know, dear listeners, that there is a aura, an atmosphere, nay, even a subtext of mid-semester that's uh, <laughs> lurking here. So just just recognize recognize that. So, H.P. Lovecraft, um, Howard Phillips, if I remember correctly. Yes, indeed. Uh, yes, not Howard Pyle, which is what I always want to say first, but that's a completely different guy. Howard Phillips Lovecraft, uh, he wasn't, his parents did not name him initials like Tolkien's parents did. <laughs> yeah, that's a joke. Yep. Um, 
uh, I appreciated it. <laughs> yes. Okay. So H.P. Lovecraft isn't exactly a household name, but it's unlikely that any of us encountered him in a sophomore American lit survey. Um, even if he happened to be in the book, it's not super likely that a professor is going to teach him. Um, still, he's one of one name famous in some circles, and uh, and you can actually even encounter the his name used as an adjective, Lovecraftian. Um, so Nathan, since I'm helming the episode and so can't give historical background, I'm pawning that off on you. <laughs> uh, can you give us a brief sketch of his life career, life and career and why a struggling pulp writer from the first half of the 20th century has gained a following? Sure. Well, first of all, I mean, uh, just to sort of put some bookends, uh, he's born in 1890. Uh, he dies in the early 1930s. Uh, so he doesn't live to old age by any means. Um, as you said, David, I mean, he is a, a writer who in his time really didn't achieve uh, any sort of prominence on the scene, although he seems to have been known uh, around the East Coast literary scene. Uh, he is, honestly, he lives the sort of life that you would expect for the mysterious uh, early seminal figure of horror literature. Uh, he's a bachelor for a long time, marries relatively late. His wife leaves him uh, for reasons that are somewhat fuzzy. Uh, he <laughs> lives out the end of his days uh, writing extensive correspondence to people. And reports of his personal life are that he was not antisocial by any means, uh, but he tended not to come out until after dark, uh, which just seems fitting for H.P. Lovecraft. <laughs> uh, he was sick as a young man, so... He always maintained that he finished high school, although his high school maintained that he didn't graduate, didn't pursue formal education beyond high school, but did read voraciously, uh, read a lot of science writing, read a lot of psychology, uh, big fan of Edgar Allan Poe, as one might expect. Uh, I, I couldn't find, and David, I, I'll probably lateral this back to you, I couldn't find any mention of his reading Friedrich Nietzsche, but I can't imagine his not reading Friedrich Nietzsche. Right. Do you know if he did any philosophy reading? Well, as, as you said, he kept an extensive correspondence. Mm -hmm. um, and as a result of that, there's more of that than can be conveniently read by even the most devoted fan. Uh -huh. <laughs> so I, I can't imagine that he didn't read it at some point sometime. Right, right. But, but I don't I, I couldn't track down the reference. Well, and especially since, I mean, in Call of Kalulu, which is, you know, I, w I would guess his best known story and one of them that we're going to talk about later. He actually drops the phrase beyond good and evil into the middle, middle of the story. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's uh, the, that strikes yep. me as a fairly good hint that he's a Nietzsche reader. Yep. Also, his, just general his general attitude toward absolutely everything. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, the opening, and, and again, I realize I'm jumping ahead in the in the show's sequence, but I mean, the opening of that story also has a very strong resemblance to Nietzsche's uh, uh, truth and lie in an extra moral sense. So, but we'll talk about that later. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. But uh, <laughs> David, I mean, those are sort of some of the high points for a person like me who likes to get the biography down and get on with it. Uh, is there anything you'd want to add to that biographical sketch? Uh, just that he 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 wasn't he wasn't um, a a mainstream literary figure, but he was very very well known in the circles that he ran in, which is as as you said, pulp the 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 kind of pulp horror 
and mm-hmm. and weird stories is what he would say. He would say weird fiction to describe yeah. what he did. Mm-hmm. He was very very well known then. Um, I have uh, I have a, uh, a copy of Weird Tales, a pulp the the pulp that he most published in uh, from the year after his death, in which there are multiple. Uh, poems and other kind of eulogies and le- uh, readers writing in um, remembering Lovecraft's death. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, he he, <laughs> he was not in the money. He was never, ever going to win a Nobel Prize or a Pulitzer Prize, but um, <laughs> he, he was known in the circles. Also, his extensive correspondence was mostly with young writers. Uh, oh, that's interesting. Okay. Yes. Uh, young writers uh, to whom he he sort of functioned as a as an advisor, um, as an uncle, uh, kind of coaching them and in editing their writing for publishing. Um, he uh, he actually had has a sort of uncredited co-author status, and a lot of these young writers' first stories they would send him drafts, and he would. Um, he would he would edit and make additions and uh, enough to mm-hmm. the, to the point where now, when you see them published, it's whoever that original author was and H.P. Lovecraft, right? Um, but at the time, it was it was the it was the the young writer who got credit for it. So he he was he was sort of a mentor for a lot of figures, right? And I should go ahead and say that I mean I became aware of Lovecraft because uh, Stephen King just utterly idolized him and. Uh, you know, wrote about him as, you know, one of the, like I said earlier, real seminal figures of the horror genre. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that, that, that's one of the reasons why he was famous, not uh, because he was the mentor of a lot of people who went on to become even more famous. Mm-hmm. I would, by the way, I would, I would argue that he is at least semi-canonical. The, the Library of America, which is an organization that puts out very nice high-end bound editions of American authors, has a Lovecraft volume dedicated just to Lovecraft. It doesn't have no. everything he's ever written. And of course there are authors who have 10 volumes and you could easily do one of 10 volumes for Lovecraft, but he does have a volume. So I would, I would call him at the very least semi-canonical. However, I, I mean, I looked it up. He's not in like the Norton anthology, not even the, not even the long one. So maybe, maybe mm-hmm. semi-canonical is the best way to think about him. Yeah. <laughs> Next door to canonical. <laughs> Quasi canonical. All right. Well, um, that's a little bit about his life. Certainly there's more that could be said, but, you know, dear listener, if you think that this is in this episode, we're going to say everything that could be said about love. So it's about single authors. If you have that impression, um, you're wrong and that's not our intention. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, shifting from life to style, uh, Lovecraft's prose and manner of storytelling are distinctive and, uh, frankly, often parodied and reviled. Um, however, uh, Lovecraft seems to have viewed his writing style as uh, a deliberate approach to achieving very specific narrative ends. And apparently at least he felt he was successful in this and the <laughs> the 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 writer's letters section of weird tales seems to uh concur 
So, Michael, um, I, I will loose the chain and let you give us your no-holds-barred impression of Lovecraft as a writer, but balanced with his own presentation of his writing process and writing goals. I will confess at the beginning that I had never read Lovecraft before you announced this episode, and I have, the only things I've read are the three stories that you uh, assigned us and this Notes on Writing Weird Fiction essay. So uh, I am by no means an expert, uh, n- not so. So don't take anything I say as like the definitive word on what Lovecraft is doing or whether he succeeds or fails. Um, he is definitely in that Edgar Allan Poe tradition, which longtime listeners of our show will know that I do not mean as a compliment. <laughs> um, I, I would say he is substantially less overwrought than Poe. I mean, the, the worst thing about Poe is the way he writes this this very uh, florid, um, overwritten prose. I, I don't think Lovecraft is quite as overwritten. I think he holds back a good deal more. And because he does that, there are there are moments in the three stories you assigned um, that uh, I, I'll just say what they are because I don't think we've mentioned that yet. We read uh, The Call of Cthulhu, Facts Concerning uh, Arthur German and Pickman's model. Um, and, and, you know, it's actually fairly structurally interesting. Uh, th- these are three stories. There are three different sorts of stories. So, um, facts concerning Arthur German is, um, a, a traditional, let's say, uh, traditionally written story. It's a third person narrative, uh, that, that, refers to past events. So that one may be less interesting. Pickman's model is a, is a, is addressed directly to the reader as though you were having a conversation with the narrator. And he even responds to things that the, the person he's talking to says that we don't hear. So, I mean, that is a, a, at least somewhat formally inventive story, uh, still a little bit overwrought to me. Uh, and, and, uh, th- that that story in particular, I think, is is ripe for parody. But uh, he is at least attempting to do something interesting. Call of Cthulhu is probably the most poean of the three we read, in the sense that it purports <laughs> it purports to be the um, the collected papers of someone who has disappeared, and and that is you know one of one of Poe's favorite tricks as well. And, and actually, in Call of Cthulhu, you have this very complex narrative structure whereby you're reading one person's papers, but he is reporting on somebody else's papers who is reporting on the, the experiences of other people. So, um, it, you know, the prose is, is a little silly in places, but the actual structure is quite complex and interesting. Um, so, you know, credit where credit's due. As for what Lovecraft thought he was doing, um, he says in that essay, Notes on Writing, weird fiction that what he was trying to do more than anything is to present an image of human beings bumping up against the unknown and the unknowable maybe more importantly than that and because of that what he wanted to do was to communicate a mood and so he saw his his stories less as deliveries of plot than as deliveries of mood. And in that sense, I think he is at least occasionally successful. There are moments in Call of Cthulhu that are really genuinely eerie, and there are also moments in Pickman's model that are genuinely eerie. Arthur German less so. Um, mm-hmm. But maybe that's because I'm not afraid of a miscegenation, so it wouldn't it wouldn't uh, <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't make me nervous. 
Um, so, so in the sense that he's trying to communicate mood, a uh, job well done. Uh, he, he's also very interested in the way time kind of limits and destroys human experience. He says, um, the reason why time plays a greater part in so many of my tales is this element looms up in my mind as the most profoundly dramatic and grimly terrible thing in the universe. Conflict with time seems to me the most potent and fruitful theme in all human expression. Uh, and I would say that that positions him quite well in the 1920s, which is, you know, the time of high modernism. And high modernism is concerned with, among many other things, the way that time makes a fool out of all of us. So if you think about the way somebody like Faulkner plays with time in his novels, this this kind of wrenching of time and pushing you around in time, I, I, I think Lovecraft does not do it as well as Faulkner, but I think he is at least attempting to do something very similar. Uh, and so um, in in that sense, he, he belongs in the modernist stream as well as in the horror fiction stream. And perhaps um, perhaps that, that's a, a good argument for his being semi-canonical in the Library of America. Mm-hmm. He does uh, my least favorite thing that Poe does, though, which is uh, italicize for emphasis. <laughs> yes. Yes, the last line of the uh, – oh, the model. Um, Pickman's model. Pickman's model. There we go. Yeah, I mean that that was – so Edgar Allan Poe that it hurt. Right. And, and again, <laughs> a good thing for a lot of people I know. Uh, not a good thing for me. Mm-hmm. But on the whole, yeah. David, I would say he is a better writer than Poe. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I think he's a more. I think he's a more disciplined writer than Poe. OK, I say and, more um, in in that. Well, I'm, I'm I'm just recalling our, our our Poe episode that one of the things that we that we talked about is that a lot of Poe's work has a very kind of first drafty feel to it, mm-hmm. whereas um, I th- I think Lovecraft's uh, Lovecraft's uh, stories bespe- uh, s- s- seem to seem to indicate that there was more drafting, there was more editing, there was more thought put into their structure. Um, there was more of an attempt to uh, to polish rather than pose confidence that that he's able to dash off something that's good enough. And and mm-hmm. notes on writing weird fiction backs that up. He says that his stories come to him in this five stage process, um, which yeah. is interesting enough that I, I I will go through them here. First, he he comes up with the plot in uh, chronological order, so so in the order that it would have happened in the real world. Then he he cuts that plot up and and puts it into a narrative order that makes it more effective. Mm-hmm. Um, and he says sometimes that's actually the first step because the 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 kind of working out of the plot sometimes just happens in his head. Then he writes out the story rapidly, fluently, and not too critically, um, according to that non chronological structure. Um, uh, so he he will revise that structure as he writes if he needs to. But I, I would say Poe probably stops there, right? Rapidly, fluently, and not too critically. Uh, sounds like a description <laughs> of the way Poe wrote to me. Um, then he revises the entire text, uh, making sure that it sounds good and reads well and there's a, there's a rhythm to it, that it's effective, that it all fits together. And then he types it up neatly, he says, not not hesitating to add final revisionary touches where they seem in order. So... 
I think both the actual quality of the prose and his description of his own process back up what you say there, David, that this is a person mm -hmm. who paid uh, quite a bit of attention to what he was writing and wanted it to sound pretty much exactly the way it does. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And one thing, uh, you, you, you compared his, uh, his floridness um, in places to, to Poe. Um, and yeah, he, he, like you said, he was a great admirer. He was a great admirer of Poe, but he deploys, um, Poe's floridity, um, in, a, in it, to, to me, it seems as if he's doing it strategically. It's for him that, that, that kind of crazy lurching, wacky adjectives, um, I'm going crazy. Uh, that 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 whole kind of stance in his um, or that 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 voice in his prose is the one that he puts on. That 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 for him is the voice of the human encountering what you what what you call the unknown and the unknowable. He gets florid when you get there, right? Yeah, because I I think for him that's that's the language that's meant to evoke that tone. And if that doesn't work for you, then it's just going to come off as goofy. But, but for him, because he's a Poe fan, that's the language that gets him into that space. He, he right, also right. does something Poe does a lot, which is uh, insist as, as the narrator that he is not insane. Um, yes. Which I'm, mm -hmm. I'm sure is, is there to heighten the effect of the, insane events of the stories. Yeah. Right. I was, um, I, I'm actually most interested by your, uh, focusing on the way he, he reorders events and comparing that to, um, uh, comparing that to Faulkner. Cause uh, I hadn't thought about it before, but in some senses, Arthur German actually is kind of like Rose for Emily. And I, I would say Arthur German has a, a good deal in common with like, Absalom, Absalom, or um, what's the other one? Light in August, both of which. But by the way, um, we're going to spoil Lovecraft, so let's go ahead and spoil it. Arthur German involves a young man who finds out that his great-grandmother was a kind of half-human, half-ape. I mean, it's it's a parable about miscegenation. And and, yeah. and so he uh, self-immolates. He, he sets himself on fire. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, to, because you know, even even Lovecraft's characters are not subtle in their racism. Uh, but but both of the Faulkner novels I mentioned involve racists finding out that they have black ancestry, and mm -hmm. so I, I I I don't know how much work has been done with Lovecraft and Faulkner, but I, I if if it hasn't been done, I think there's probably work to be done. Mm-hmm. Well, if Faulkner's doing Southern Gothic, um, not necessarily in the stories that, that that I presented you guys with, but in many of his stories, he's doing New England Gothic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can see that. So, yeah, I, I, I think that would be worth doing. Well, let's let's move into some uh, talking about some some content of the stories. Um, one of the recurrent features of Lovecraft's weird fiction is 
uh, as we've said, his representation of human encounters with what's you know unimaginable and unnameable is one of his favorite uh, terms, the unimaginable and unnameable other. Um, call of, uh, you're saying Cthulhu, Nathan, and Michael saying Cthulhu. Um, Cthulhu is what I've heard most, but apparently in one of Lovecraft's letters, he said it's supposed to be said something like, <laughs> which I'm Sorry. not going to do. <laughs> Sorry, Lovecraft. And, and, and guys, I'll, I'll just admit that my pronunciation is the product of years of being corrected by Lovecraft readers. So, because <laughs> the first few times I tried to say it out loud, I mean, it came out Cthulhu, and you mean Kalulu, don't you? I say Cthulhu because David do. says Cthulhu, and he's the one who told me how to pronounce it. There you go. Well, tomato, the squid tomato. monster. So, listeners, if you want to attempt to, uh, you know, do uh, that name in, uh, you know, some sort of international phonetic alphabet uh, in an email, feel free to do so. Although last time we had a person write in with international phonetic alphabet, uh, we learned that none of us can actually read it. (laughs) Well, um, uh, actually, you might want to include this in, in, in what you say, Nathan, but there is a discussion about whether or not uh, about the writing of Cthulhu's name in that story. And it's, it's, it's a very deferred kind of name anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, this is, uh, probably Lovecraft's best known story. Um, Mm -hmm. and it's, it's about this encounter with the unnameable other and human responses to it, whether we fear it or we worship it. So talk about the gods or monsters or whatever you want to call them. Uh, in Lovecraft's fictional universe. Well, I, I'm going to keep saying Kalulu because, like I said, it's a habit I've developed, is a figure uh, who remains obscure all throughout the story. And, you know, now that we've read his essay on writing weird fiction, I mean, that's certainly deliberate. Uh, it is a figure who is represented um, with statuettes throughout the story uh, and who's sleeping and or dead body gets uh, narrated by a narrator at three or four removes from the original narrator towards the end of the story. The point being here that, you know, in, in basically Kalulu is a figure that comes to us always deferred. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the opening of the story though, because like I said earlier, uh, it definitely reminded me of uh, Nietzsche's famous essay, on truth and lie in an extra moral sense. And I'm going to read a translation of that one and then read the first lines of uh, Call of Kalulu. So here's Nietzsche. In some remote corner of the universe, poured out and glittering in innumerable solar systems, there once was a star in which clever animals invented knowledge. That was the highest and most mendacious minute of world history, yet only a minute. After nature had drawn a few breaths, the the star grew cold, and the clever animals had to die. And, you know, uh, Nietzsche calls this the governing fable of his work. Let me read, um, not the epigraph, but the the first lines of the actual story, Call of Kalulu. Uh, The most merciful thing in the world, I think, is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents. We live on a placid island of ignorance in the midst of black seas of infinity, and it was not meant that we should voyage far. Uh, so I, like I said, I mean, I, I, just an undeniably Nietzschean feel to it, uh, even if we could never establish, you know, that he had a copy of 
beyond good and evil in his hand at any point. Uh, there's definitely some influence here. So in the story, uh, Kalulu, again, always deferred, always at two or three removes, seems to be this figure who emerges well before the advent of Homo sapiens uh, and who becomes an object of worship or of fear, like we said, uh, in a way that is, I mean, in a, in a different kind of story, you would call it a sort of satanic cult. Uh, it's a cult that sacrifices humans. It is a cult that uh, insists on a sort of dark secret knowledge. Uh, and at every step, you know, what you get is people who are sort of on the margins of what we would call civilization doing these deeds that we would call uncivilized, all in the name of this dark force that precedes humanity. Uh, so it, it's it's an interesting mythos. I mean, one of the things that I found most interesting about this story is that, you know, the, the papers that Michael already mentioned earlier uh, are the papers of a professor of ancient Semitic studies. Uh, so it's someone who is familiar with the old Babylonian gods and the old Sumerian gods and uh, so on and so forth, uh, who basically discovers that, you know, what we think of as the beginning of civilization is ultimately not even remotely close to the beginning, that there is something dark and something deadly lying far earlier than what we think of as the beginning. So this is, you know, the, the atmosphere of Call of Kalulu. As we mentioned earlier, it, it's not big on plot. Uh, what you get is a gradual series of revelations of things that have happened rather than things happening in the moment. Uh, but again, I mean, the atmosphere all the way through is really the thing. So, you know, I'm, I'm kind of talking in circles around it, and I, I realize as I talk that, I mean, there's really no better way than I can think of to talk about this story than to talk in a deferred manner about a story that is itself deferred. Uh, Michael, I mean, what, what do you have to say about how this story rolls on? I think, I, I mean, I, I agree with you there that there, the, there, there's something fundamentally undiscussable about this. And, and he, mm. he's really attempting something very ambitious, which is to, to describe the unimaginable. Mm -hmm. And, and that, that really seems from what I understand about him from the few stories I've read that, that seems to be the essence of his project is, is to describe that, which not only can't be described, can't even really be experienced or imagined being experienced or anything like that. It's, it's something wholly other, something completely at odds with our civilization. Mm hmm. Right. And again, I mean, what I see when I read that, just because, I mean, this is what I spend my time reading, is a strong Nietzschean sense that the universe is fundamentally chaotic and that any claims to knowledge on our part, you know, emerge out of a will to power. It's a it's a will on the part of human beings to make order where there is no order rather than to disclose an order that is inherent there. And, you know, the Kalulu cult uh, as it emerges in this story, basically mocks human attempts to make sense of things. Yep. David, yep. you're a, you're a Lovecraft guy. I mean, what else would you add about this? <laughs> I mean, sort of iconic story. The importance of non. Um, well, I, I guess what we consider non-rational. Uh, 
means of communication are those that dominate mm-hmm. um, in, in uh, among the the followers of Cthulhu. Uh, it's mainly representational art, mm-hmm. um, remembered words that only few even know what they're supposed to mean. Right. Um, dreams, the importance of dreams, because uh, Cthulhu and the, the other great old ones that they talk about in the story, whatever these creatures are and from wherever they are, beyond the stars, um, they they can communicate to human beings. They have a consciousness that is analogous in some ways, but uh, they, they speak through dreams. Mm-hmm. And so there are particular particular people who are more attuned to them and it is not um it is not the the scientific and the rational it is uh it is people who are more aesthetic the the artist Mm. yeah yeah you know and 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 so forth so that's that's a Poe move too, right? I mean, when when it, when I'm reading the description of Wilcox in that story, the artist who gets the fever and the, the, mm. our first really exposure to Cthulhu, I couldn't. I, I mean, I wrote in my in my book, um, Roderick Usher, yeah, um, who who mm-hmm. is also a hypersensitive guy who becomes a conduit for really God knows what in the fall of the House of Usher. Right. And also yeah. not not incidentally an abstract artist. Right. A hundred right. years before there was such a thing as abstract expressionism. <laughs> right. Yeah. But that I know, I know, I'm getting ahead of myself too. But Nathan already did it, so I'm doing it too. <laughs> <laughs> well also, but, you know, hat hat tip, this is um so far as I know, this is this is the earliest this is the earliest source I'm aware of that ever suggested that the gods are really aliens mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In, 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 in some sense. Um, so that, you know, Eric Von Donneken's chari- chariots of the gods and all of that history channel stuff. Um, so far <laughs> as I can tell, I've never uh, heard history <laughs> pronounced so sneeringly. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm sorry, but the, the whole, the, 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 the recurrent ha- having a whole show built around ancient aliens, really, <laughs> The Cthulhu Channel. Yeah, that, that Danny loves that show. By the way, Danny Anderson. <laughs> of course he does. <laughs> anyway, well, I mean, it's it. Uh, well, I won't turn it off. I'll watch it and yell because <laughs> that's the kind of person I am. Oh uh, shoot! Anyway, uh, so so far as I can tell, Lovecraft is is the one who kind of comes up with that idea, and he doesn't mean it seriously. All right, um, you know, uh, it it is good that we do some biography for him because there's a lot of biography out there, pseudo biography of Lovecraft, as if he was like, you know, some kind of Satanist, and it's all real, man. And yeah, Lovecraft, yeah, which no, no, if you read your letters. You know, the, all of the stuff which he referred to as Yogsothery, Yogsothothery, which Yogsothoth is a, another entity in one of his other stories. And, you know, mm-hmm. he, he, he seems to have not taken it seriously to the point where he would encode the names of his friends um, as, you know, kind of entities or ancient figures who wrote about them and 
uh, he and his little circle of friends would would make up these you know crazy unknown books that had the true uh, you know the true knowledge about these these weird creatures and they would just sort of trade each other's books right uh-huh uh-huh you know so you know robert howard the guy who invented conan he invents a book and hp lovecraft will refer to it and it, anyway it's it's pretty pretty funny so he didn't right. take this all that seriously still it's he he's doing he's doing something interesting he takes his art seriously even if he doesn't want to present it as entirely a a, a religion that you need to go evangelize for tomorrow right right i mean it's reminiscent of what uh Gerta does at the end of part one of faust mm. you know the the valpurgis Nacht dream where mm. you know all of his Basically, all of the people who wrote negative reviews of any of his books become farcical figures in a satanic mass. <laughs> kind of like that, except not out of meanness. Well, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so don't know. So, don't start any, you know, campus crusade for Cthulhu chapters. You know, <laughs> listeners. Well, you've been wa- you've been uh, apparently chomping at the bit to talk about the art side of this, Michael. So. Here we go. Um, one of Lovecraft's favorite themes is visual art and what it what it can do or can't. Uh, he touches on it some in Call of Cthulhu, like you mentioned, um, but even more f- emphatically in Pigman's model. So, what for Lovecraft is is the nature of art? What can it do? What can't it do? And so forth. So we're out of time in art history. And again, I've never taken an art history class. So if I'm getting this wrong, please, some art person, write in and tell me what an idiot I am. Our, our listeners have been very good lately about writing in and telling us how wrong we are about everything. <laughs> yes, please do so. Um, we're at a time in art history where we're really moving away from the idea of art as mimesis, uh, which is mm-hmm. which is really, I mean, how art was conceived in most of the Western world all the way back to Plato, right? It, it is supposed to represent reality. This is why Plato doesn't like it. There was, of course, non-representational art, really always. <laughs> you know, that, yeah. that, that is always a thing that has existed, and there's always been people who preferred it. My, 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 my favorite thing is Kant apparently really loved non-representational art. You, 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 for whatever reason, that's not something I would have expected from him, but it doesn't <laughs> matter. So by, by the early 20th century, um, the, the mainstream of the Western art world is moving away from representational mimetic art. And it shouldn't be any surprise why that is. It, it's photography, right? It, it, the photograph mm-hmm. is, is a better representation of reality, perhaps, than any, any but the very, most skilled uh, painter could do so instead the painters start painting things that don't directly represent physical reality in call of cthulhu lovecraft talks about the futurists and the cubists both of whom well the futurist whole thing was they wanted to paint motion and and power as as like physical things and and if you look at uh futurist art it's very striking it's a lot of bright colors it's it's a lot of hard angles and it's very sharp. I um the the philosophy behind it is horrifying, but the uh, the yeah. actual art I think is pretty cool. Uh, cubism is is probably familiar to most of our listeners as as an attempt to paint the same thing from multiple perspectives at once. Lovecraft mm. brings this up because he says that that these are in some sense a representation of the world of Cthulhu. That that or or at the very least, if you were to paint the world of Cthulhu, it would look like futurism and cubism. 
Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think he even says that that somebody does paint it having no knowledge of futurism or cubism, and, and, and it comes out that way. And again, I'm reminded of Roderick Usher, who essentially invents abstract expressionism uh, by, by the things he paints. Mm-hmm. What you have there is taking non-representational art and turning it back into mimesis. So it looks abstract, but it only looks abstract because it is a direct, accurate representation of a reality that is so far from our own that uh, it looks abstract. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I actually thought that was very interesting, and I would have preferred he talked about that for two or three more paragraphs than he did, because it's really just an offhand reference. I think a couple of offhand references, but that, that seems to be where he's going. Pickman's model has to do with painting horrific scenes, and, and Pickman is uh, a genius, says our narrator. He's the, the best painter there's ever been at painting these horrific scenes, and I'm not sure how seriously we're supposed to take the paintings, whether um, Pickman would consider them art, or whether he's painting them for the cover of Weird Tales magazine, um, <laughs> because I, I don't know of a lot of art that paints monsters. Mm-hmm. You, you know, but whatever. Let's 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 take it at, at face value, and and again, what we learn is this is not an act of imagination. Pickman is so good at painting these things, not because he imagines them better than anybody else, but because he t- he takes a photograph of whatever unspeakable evil he's painting a picture of, and then just reproduces the photograph with his paintbrush. So again, we're taking something not th- that's not non-representational because it is representational, but something that's surreal. Let's say let let, let Let's, let's assume Pickman is a sort of surrealist, and it turns mm-hmm. out that instead of inventing this with his mind or tapping into his dreams or what have you, he is literally representing a reality that he sees that the rest of us don't see. Or, if you will, by God, Elliot, it was a photograph from life. <sighs> <laughs> it reads so much better if you have a sting behind it. Yeah. But, uh... <laughs> So, so I, I don't know exactly what to make of this. I, I, I would be interested in reading somebody who did art history and modernist literature and, and to see what, what they would make of references like this. Because it, it seems to me that it, it's simultaneously quite modernist and pulling the rug out from underneath modernism. It's diminishing mm-hmm. the power of the human imagination. Because, because if all you're doing when you make a cubist painting is painting what you see, well, then all of a sudden there's much less of a role for the human mind in that creativity. Mm-hmm. Maybe, or maybe I'm I'm revealing my own anti-representational bias because I I would much prefer non-realist art. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Did I leave anything out? No, I mean I I would just you know grab onto one of the points you made and expand on it a bit. That you know this is a world that basically subverts the whole premise of non-representational art, like you just said. And I mean it's it it runs parallel with. Uh, you know, Call of Cthulhu and, you know, the sort of, uh, I don't even, I don't want to say juxtaposition. I would say almost the identification of sort of a, a pagan mythology with a modern science. You know, they are both uh, sort of inadequate modes of knowledge because what actually exists out there is far beyond any powers of conception that we might have. So uh, you're right that, I mean, it, it it's, I, I don't even know what, how to label it ethically. I mean, it, it, it's taking – I like your take, Michael, I mean, on the power of imagination. Uh, I would say even beyond that, it sort of says that what we think of as perception and what we think of as imagination are really just the same thing, but 
you know, because we are so concerned with making divisions among things, we don't realize it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like you were saying earlier, it's hard to say how serious to hear, how seriously, pardon me, to take this, but, um, it's certainly an interesting premise for a sort of thought experiment. Well, it's especially interesting because, as David said, Lovecraft doesn't believe any of this stuff, which means he is using his imagination rather than his perception. Yeah. Right? At the same time, he's kicking out the legs from underneath imagination. Mm-hmm. Right, right. But what's interesting is, I mean, unlike you know what I would think of as sort of Jonathan Swift or a Voltaire satire, I mean, the... This, the mode of storytelling here is just so perfectly straight. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. the, the, the narrator never winks. Yes, no, never. Never, never, never. Not in, not in this one. Uh, I think there's a couple of stories in which I think he's winking a little bit. Right, right, but in, in <laughs> Kalusu and Pikmin, certainly not. No. Yeah. Um, you, you know, David, I did not enjoy reading these stories, but it's been fun talking about them. <laughs> you didn't you didn't enjoy any of it at, at any point I, I, like i said i liked i liked sections of call of cthulhu okay all right see that i i i will live off of that concession <laughs> um i i i kind of want to turn turn this on its head a little bit and go back to the whole idea of of human dreams and things like that being being what in this fictional realm connects humans to to the thing they can't imagine mm-hmm. or to, to the thing that they can't rationally kind of conceive of and say that, you know, it's not so much that he's knocking leg, the legs out from under imaginative uh, uh, imagination or human creativity so much as saying that not that saying that your imagination is really just a perception, so it's just mimesis, but rather saying, no, no, what if imagination is perception man <gasps> man you know <laughs> so that uh so that this abstract art is is in some is in some sense vatic in some sense prophetic well and, and what's interesting is maybe not the abstract expressionists and, and mm-hmm. maybe not the surrealists but you get artists who seem like their portrait of the world is a little off so uh, i'm thinking um El Greco. Mm-hmm. El Greco has these weird, elongated, melancholy figures, and, and people would ask him how he came up with these, and he'd say, well, I paint what I see. Mm-hmm. Um, now, now they're saying that, oh, he, he had some sort of vision disorder that made him see the world like that, uh, <laughs> which is aggravating to me, as, as our listeners would expect it to be. But, I yeah. mean, if, if that's not the case, if that's not what was happening... Um, he, El Greco was saying something similar, I think, to what David is saying, that, that, that the, the imagination is an act of perception, and, and you, you kind of bring it into the world and look at it. I'm not sure that's what Lovecraft is doing, because it, it really does seem to me that there, there's not much imagination in what Pickman is doing, right? I mean, the, the, mm-hmm. the painting that, that, that we, well, of course, I don't think we ever even really get a good description of it, but the painting seems to be identical to the photograph. Yeah. I, that's what I was going to bring in is when you put the photograph into the narrative, then mm-hmm. I think that, you know, imagination stops being a power. Yeah. In in some sense, the power of, of Pickman is not so much his imagination in producing paintings as it is his 
his access to this world of monsters mm-hmm. that that others don't even know exists. His 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 brilliance was not just in his ability to paint something well, but his uh, I, I guess insight that led him to investigate and so discover, you know, that there was this side of reality that had not been dreamt of. Um, also, that that painting that's described in the photograph that it's that it's drawn from um, is was actually inspired by one of uh, Goya's black paintings. Hmm. Oh, interesting. The the uh, uh, Saturn devouring his children. If you remember that one. Um, Vaguely, yeah. Okay, it, it's uh, well. Goya is mentioned in Pick, in Pickman's model a number of times as, uh, and particularly his black paintings as, as something like what Pickman's doing. But um, the good uh, heavens, I think it's, yeah. I just looked that up. Oh my gosh! <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. And so, uh, if you if you look at that painting the um the kind of amazing thing or at least the the idea that seems to be inspiring lovecraft is what if that was a painting from life and then you're like oh i don't want to live in the world in which that's true and that's essentially what the story's about what if that was the world you lived in a world in which that was a painting from life <laughs> yay <laughs> Yeah. Well, and we've also, um, well, I, I, I guess that you, you, you were nodding your head towards this too, Nathan. Um, uh, notions of science in the introduction of Call of uh, Cthulhu. Mm-hmm. So let's go from art to art to science. Um, the opening paragraph of Call of Cthulhu is actually actually pretty well known, um, but it's pretty similar to the uh, the opening paragraph of facts concerning the late Arthur German and his family, Arthur mm-hmm. German hereafter. Um, and both of them present a pretty bleak view of science. So if you could talk a bit about those opening paragraphs and and how they uh, how they set up the role of science in Lovecraft's fictional universe. Sure. So I already read the opening lines of Call of Cthulhu, and that's you know that very Nietzschean feel to it. And of course, Nietzsche's, you know, signature move in uh, truth and lie in an extra moral sense is to call the very linguistic structure of knowledge into question. He of course develops that uh, suspicion of knowledge much further in his other books. And when we get to Lovecraft, uh, we get that suspicion of science. Uh, and I say suspicion rather than skepticism because the idea seems to be that it is an active, willful deception whenever we claim to have knowledge. So in Kalulu, we get a whole bunch of police investigators and professors and people who, in a civilized concept, are really the the folks who seek after truth. I'll put it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what they discover as you know facts about the Kalulu cult emerge is that one the normal ways that you would get to it by studying library archives and such really don't get you there. I mean, you really discover, you know, the only direct encounter with the body of Kalulu because someone had a 
an old newspaper underneath some knickknacks on a shelf. Uh, you know, I mean, so it's an entirely fortuitous, gratuitous, uh, serendipitous encounter that actually brings you into, into contact with that. Then when we swing over to uh, Arthur German, what we get there is, I mean, first of all, you know, Michael's already pointed out, I mean, just the blatant racism that is the really the premise for the story. Uh, mm -hmm. He destroys himself because he discovers that he is descended from these quasi-human creatures who hail from Africa. All right, let's get that out of the way and look at the structure of this. <laughs> like Kalulu, this is a story about origins that lie beyond the grasp of science. Uh, so as in Kalulu, uh, Arthur German is destroyed precisely because he seeks out those things that are beyond the narratives that we prefer to tell about our own origins. Uh, he discovers that, in fact, you know, what he thinks of as a fairly prestigious scientific family has these subhuman origins to them. And, you know, on the one hand, there's definitely some biological racism going on there. But we got to remember that biological racism is sort of the twin sibling of modern biology. You know, it is coming to grips with the realization that we are as much connected to animal life as we are transcendent beyond animal life. Uh, and the fact that some people with certain outlooks on life just can't handle that reality. Uh, now, I mean, I, I'm going, going to go ahead and give a hat tip to uh, John Milbank, one of my favorite theologians, uh, who says that, you know, if you look back far enough, I mean, one of Thomas Aquinas's central concerns is that our spiritual life is precisely the spiritual life of a created animal, and it couldn't be any other way. So, you know, if you had stuck to your medieval Thomism, then, you know, you wouldn't have this biological racism problem, which I love that argument. But uh, getting back to Lovecraft here, uh, it's one of those things where science is a sort of incurable urge on the part of human beings, mm -hmm. and it also leads human beings to their destruction inevitably. And that combination of realities is really, I mean, what sets up the horrific ending, uh, which Michael already talked about, in which Arthur German discovers this unwanted and unthinkable origin for himself and destroys himself as a result. And the story ends with the scientific community never mentioning his name again. Uh, so it's one of those things where once you have a brief encounter with truth, the first instinct of humanity is to destroy truth. Hmm. What would you add, David? Well, I'm going to toss it at Michael. What do you, anything you want to add to that? Just that it, I would say you, you didn't claim that it's an that he's an anti-science writer. He, he's like an anti-all of human endeavor writer. I mean, because mm -hmm. art, yeah. art also fails to do it. I mean, everything. There, there's mm -hmm. no way to humanly approach this because, as we've said several times now, it's it's fundamentally unknowable, unimaginable, and so. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. I mean, he he. Yeah, I mean, it isn't even really right to call him a pessimist writer. Uh, mm. He is, I mean, really, I mean, what he does is he marginalizes humanity, but then tells that story with human devices. Right. I'm going to read that opening paragraph. Go. Yeah. Eli uh, of Arthur German. Life is a hideous thing, and from the background behind what we know of it peer demoniacal hints of truth, which make it sometimes a thousandfold more hideous. 
Science, already oppressive with its shocking revelations, will perhaps be the ultimate exterminator of our human species, if separate species we be, for its reserve of unguessed horrors could never be borne by mortal brains if loosed upon the world. If we knew what we are, we should do as Sir Arthur German did, and Arthur German soaked himself in oil and set fire to his clothing one night. No one placed the charred fragments in an urn or set a memorial to him who had been, for certain papers and a certain boxed object were found which made men wish to forget. Some who knew him do not admit that he ever existed. Mm. Right. So you know how the story ends, right? The story is about how Arthur German sets himself on fire because of a box. Yeah. <laughs> and so you have this whole family, the, the family story, right? The descent of Arthur German is traced, you know, uh, through, through the generations until you get to the actual opening of the box. And, the act- and what is in the box is, well, great-great-great-great-great-great-grandma's head. Um, Great-great-great-great-great-great-grandma, the ape woman. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I kind of agree, I, I mean, I agree, Michael, that, misog- that miscegenation is, is part of the subtext, but it seems to me that in, in some ways he undercuts that because miscegenation isn't a subtext that's actually in the text. People, the, the, you know, people who look at the German family in the story, um, are the ones who keep thinking these Germans are weird because they're Portuguese or gypsy or whatever else, you know, it's, it's, it's folks in the story who keep trying to blame the, the wild propensities of the German family on particular ethnic minorities. When in fact the secret is, um, great, 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 great grandma was, you know, a Neanderthal or something, <laughs> you know, and then if you, if you read that in light of the opening paragraph, the opening paragraph is basically the dirty secret of Arthur German is the dirty secret of the human race, according to science, which is our great, 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 great grandma was a monkey. So can you handle that? The opening paragraph says, I mean, that, that, that's my reading of it. It's kind of a gothic, you know, a gothic retelling of the descent of man in which, you know, Darwin, Darwin, the Darwinian descent of humanity is the dirty secret in, in, of the human family. Right. <laughs> which doesn't make it less racist, but it does make it a, as you said, Nathan, a biological racism. Mm-hmm. Not merely a racism of of some kind of presumed cultural superiority or something like that. Uh, anyway, yeah, this is probably the most uncomfortable thing for Lovecraft fans, so I had to include it. <laughs> well, yeah, because someone would say, well, you're neglecting this. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, no, we have to talk about it. Yeah. Um, though, one one interesting thing, I, I, again so many there were so many stories couldn't include them all but one common theme uh, that he has in his stories is that of not evolution but devolution um and he he seems to have had the idea that 
um, while humanity evolved, um, that the sort of upward direction of evolution is an accident. There's no, there's no, there's no telos in that. Right. Mm-hmm. That, that's, means, act, that's actually not an uncommon idea in the late 19th century. It, it, a lot of like Victorian fiction displays that anxiety. Maybe Dracula is the easiest one to point to. In, yeah, the, right, the, original, in the original Dracula, he, he's hairy and, and Wolfman-like. Not, not the, mm-hmm. he, he's not, um, oh, who am I thinking? Bela Lugosi. Right, right. At any moment, we might descend back into the beasts that we arose from mm-hmm. and stories like the lurking fear or shadow of Oren's mouth, um, or, Oh, the rats in the walls. Um, it, it's, it's a, it's a pretty common one in Lovecraft. He's, he's, he's a little bit worried that humanity's ascent can just as easily become a descent without warning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if you start to craving blood, you should whip it. Sorry. <laughs> Devo, sorry. <laughs> okay. Whip it good. Into shape. Yeah, sorry, sorry. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess uh, we need to round out our conversation. So um, I'd like to give us each a chance to take a stab at noteworthy, any other noteworthy features of these stories. Um, what's worth investigating, what's worth enjoying, or abominating that we have not mentioned yet so michael i want to talk about the freudian subtext of call of cthulhu okay. uh, which i think civilization and its discontents is like 1931 so call of cthulhu is is before it but i, I think they make an hmm. interesting uh double case study both in terms of the dreams and the subconscious we've been talking about the idea that there's this there's this underground thing that's trying to get to us through the non-rational parts of our mind. Um, mm-hmm. Freud in Civilization and its Discontents talks about this thanotic impulse as opposed to the libidic impulse that wants to destroy the civilization we've built up. Certainly that seems to be what he's going at there in Call of Cthulhu. Um, you have what is essentially a prior primordial civilization rising up to destroy this thing that we've spent all these centuries putting together. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's, it's here. This is, this is toward the end of that story. I shall never sleep calmly again. When I think of the horrors that lurk ceaselessly behind life in time and space. And of those unhallowed blasphemies from elder stars, which dream beneath the sea known and favored by a nightmare cult, ready and eager to loose them on the world whenever another earthquake shall heave their monstrous stone city again to the sun and air. Uh, Now, Mm -hmm. Freud would say it's not some horrible squid monster waiting to come back and destroy. It's this shadow side of all of us, the the part of us that doesn't want to live in a civilization with its rules and its structure and its order. And so somewhere deep down inside of us, we want to destroy it. Uh, but I, I think they make mm-hmm. interesting companion pieces. Also worth oh, yeah. no, also worth noting um, the, when he actually describes the voodoo rituals or the kind of quasi voodoo rituals of the Cthulhu cult, 
Um, it's always in subhuman terms. Uh, it was voodoo, apparently, but voodoo of a more terrible sort than they had ever known, and some of their women and children had disappeared since the malevolent Tom-Tom had begun its incessant beating far beneath, uh, far within the black haunted woods where no dweller ventured. There were insane shouts and harrowing screams, soul-chilling chants and dancing devil flames. And he says, um, there are vocal qualities peculiar to men and vocal qualities peculiar to beasts. And it is terrible to hear the one when the source should yield the other. So you have, again, that devolution fear, I think, combined with a proto-civilization and its discontents, Mm -hmm. thanotic impulse. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's not coincidence either that he describes the architecture of the Kalulu city as cyclopean. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the Cyclops, of course, is the creature that Homer identifies as that which does not live in a polis. Hmm. Cool. Though oh, yeah, it, yeah. Though it almost lives in like an alternate polis in some sense. The anti-polis. Mm-hmm. Um, Nathan? Uh, what what I would like to point up is just how influential Lovecraft is once you start reading him and thinking about other texts you're familiar with. Uh, this is the first time I've ever read Lovecraft and watched Ghostbusters in this close proximity. Uh, and mm-hmm. oh, dear heavens, is that ever a send-up of Lovecraft? Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> um, but even beyond that, I mean, you know, I, I'm one of the faculty sponsors for our college's uh, student literary journal. And, uh, I mean, every student who tries to write a scary story is channeling Lovecraft. So just immensely influential, even if in his own day he didn't make any money off of it. Yeah, he made some money, but not nearly enough. Uh, The Lovecraft industry around Lovecraft now is, if he could have had some of that, well, he might have actually gone to the doctor and had surgery as he ought to have had and not died when he was, you know, not even 50 yet. Right. But, you know, how, how many other writers could we say that of? <laughs> True enough. What I'd like to toss in there is uh, Michael has already alluded to Call of Cthulhu's uh, narrative structure as a a frame within a frame within a frame, um, a found document about the finding of documents. Um, but I, I want to talk about how I, I think that story, if it did not create the the taste in, in the American reading audience, uh, audience for conspiracy fiction, conspiracy theories, um, it certainly fostered it and helped and helped give that way of telling stories or that kind of story, um, a boost. Uh, if you've ever read, uh, Umberto Eco's Foucault's Pendulum, um, it's in, in a lot of ways, it's, uh, it, it looks like Call of Cthulhu writ large, very, 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 very large and very postmodern. Um, but also the influence on writers like Pynchon, right? Uh, as well as you know the more more common stuff uh, that's even even presented as nonfiction, like uh, Eric von Donneken's Chariots of the Gods, or you know those various various conspiracy theory websites who think that all the all the politicians are reptilian aliens from outer space ruling us, you know things of that nature. Um, and your favorite I, TV show? And, and yes, and my favorite TV show. Um, also, uh, 
Uh, I have not watched it and probably won't because it's it's a little bit too too hard for my tastes. But I'm told that um, the that show True Detective has um, has a very strong uh, feel of love for uh, of, of that kind of Lovecraftian narrative. That's interesting. Uh, that, that conspiracy narrative. It's also um, supposed to be like super existentialist. I haven't seen it either. Mm-hmm. We don't have HBO. Well, I, I don't have HBO, and from what I've heard of it, I probably wouldn't watch it anyway. Anyway, like I said, the content seems a little too hard for my. Well, taste. I think I think there is a fantastic amount of nudity on that show, from my understanding. Right. right. Well. Yeah. So the Freudian subtext is now just text. Yeah. Well, you know that's uh, <laughs> that's the twenty first century, man. <laughs> so. Anywho, uh, that, dear listeners, is our Lovecraft episode. Um, you know, again, apologies for not talking about your favorite story if you've got one. So, uh, dear listeners, um, Coyle and Todd, um, write in and let us know what we left out, what we should have talked about, and what we said that ain't so. Uh, if you want to contact us, you can leave uh, comments on show notes when they post on our our blog, christianhumanist.org. You can send email directly to us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. And you can also post on our Facebook wall. Uh, you can like us on Facebook, and you can uh, give us good reviews on iTunes. Both of those things we like very much. Uh, what are we doing next week, Michael? We are starting our fall triptych, and we, we talked about this in August, not on the show, just among the three of us. And uh, we're going to be doing three Robin Williams movies of varying degrees of seriousness to honor um, Williams, who, of course, uh, killed himself uh, at the end of the summer. Uh, so we're going to start with Terry Terry Gilliam. Gilliam? Gilliam? I think it's Gilliam. Uh, Terry Gilliam's so The Fisher King. Hmm. Cool. Yeah, so that's what we'll be we'll be talking about that next week, uh, listeners. If you want to watch that, it is available on Netflix. If you have Netflix, if not, uh, I suppose you can get it some other way. Go to a video store. Oh yeah, that's that's a good idea. <laughs> if you can find one of those, and then then this semi obscure <laughs> film from the early nineties, because Redbox ain't gonna have it. No, no, it's not gonna be in the Redbox. All right. Well, that's it, dear listeners. Um, Look forward to next week and, well, the next two after that when we're going to be hanging out with uh, the late and lamented Robin Williams. So in the meanwhile, this is the Christian Humanist Podcast, uh, one of several on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Uh, I'm David Grubbs, wishing you all grand weeks on behalf of Michael Farmer and Nathan Gilmore. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our intern is Zach Schmidt. And now I will leave you with good advice from Martin Luther, which if you don't understand it, listen to our feedback episode. Let your sin be strong. Let your faith be strong. So the same Still
Your love. 